You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us Mick Brown, who's the author of the Nirvana Express: How the Search for Enlightenment Went West. Hi, Mick. Hi, very pleased to meet you. How are you doing? Yeah, fine. You know, Mick. I mean, yeah. I was reading this book, and it's um, it's really a great read, and uh, you know, it's Thank uh, and and you know, one always reads about. I mean. Uh, when I was younger, I always sort of wondered why people were coming to India, you know, and, and and Indians often had this sort of, we were a bit leery about it, to be honest, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> and then, uh, and now, like I said earlier, you know, India has changed so much and we're so very consumerist that this feels like almost you know, like an excavation of history, you know, <laughs> it feels mm-hmm. like a spiritual excavation. So do you want to talk about, you know, why you've written this book to begin with? Yeah, well, this is a subject I've always been very, very interested in. Uh, and I've written a couple of books before, uh, which touch briefly on on, on the West's uh, engagement with with uh, Eastern spiritual teachings. I wrote a book about a book called The Spiritual Tourist, which was a sort of much more a personal account about encountering various Indian gurus and uh, spending time in ashrams and so on and so forth. Uh, and then I wrote a book about the 17th Kamapa, the Tibetan mm. Buddhist Lama, which was really, yes. a, I guess, a study of the politics of reincarnation. But I, like you, I've, I've been always been fascinated, really, by, by the history of this and how the West came to engage with, with Indian spiritual teachings. And in the course of researching this, it's taken me a long time to write this um, but in the course of researching this, it was fascinating for me to, to unravel some of these different connections. But certainly from the 18th century, uh, there's always been this fascination in the West with Indian teachings, Indian spiritual teachings. And I think we can, you know, a lot of people think, oh, this began with the Beatles and the Maharishi in the 60s. And, and that, I'm sure, is when it began to have this interest began to have a very direct physical impact on India. Uh, when India was besieged by long-haired hippies uh, traveling across uh, Asia in VW buses uh, in search of enlightenment. Um, but in fact, with, with the West and with Indian swamis and teachers goes way, way back before that. Uh, and, and so I was just very interested to tell that story and, and to try and put these things in context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know you begin with uh, uh, with the light of Asia, and you know, and the thing yes. is with that book is that it also had a great impact on a- on India. So there was a circularity in the sense that Nehru, it was one of Nehru's favorites, and then B R Ambedkar had you know who wrote our constitution had had, and then he led his um, followers to Buddhism. So he had two copies on a shelf, and you know, so there was there's right. that. When I, when I was reading the book, I was making all these connections as well. So do you want to start yeah. with Arnold and you know the impact? Yeah, of that? well, that's that's really that's a really good place to start. Um, I mean, the the Light of Asia is this epic uh, poem about the life of the Buddha, written by a man named Edwin Arnold, and Edwin Arnold was was. Uh, a sort of Victorian polymath, really, mm-hmm. uh, and he had been a, a, the headmaster of a, of a, of a college in Pune, uh, yes. and as such, he developed a terrific interest in 
in, in, in Indian religion and Indian culture. Uh, and he came back to came back to Britain um, and wrote this uh, wrote this poem about the life of the Buddha. And it was really the first, certainly the first poetic telling in English of the life of the Buddha. But it was a sensation. It sold sold uh, more than a million copies in in Britain and and in America, and went on to be published throughout the world. And, and Edwin Arnold was garlanded with with honors and uh, and titles and so forth. And and so I think that that book did have a tremendous tremendous impact, really. Actually, not least on, on um, Mohandas Gandhi, subsequently Mahatma yes, Gandhi. Yes. Uh, and Gandhi was living in London at the time, and he and Arnold became very good friends. Uh, they were both joint secretaries of the Vegetarian Society, yeah, okay. which was uh, one of those things. Uh, in late Victorian England, there was this sort of convulsion of different ideas, free thinking. Uh, sort of turning away from the rigid conventions of Victorian society, really. Uh, and, and then Arnold went on to do a, a translation of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, and, and Gandhi actually said it was reading that book that really awakened him to the, to the beauty of, 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 of his own Hindu upbringing because mm -hmm. he hadn't really sort of engaged with that growing up. Um, so Arnold was a, was a very important uh, character. And so, yeah, I begin the book with Arnold. And, and then in a sense, it's a bit like a sort of a daisy chain, really. Uh, you know, it follows the book. Uh, the book follows this chain through various people, first of all, who read that book, uh, and then the person who met the person who'd read that book, and so on and so forth, until we yeah. eventually end up in, in, in the 80s with uh, Rajneesh, who I think, yeah. again, is a very interesting character for very different reasons. Yes, yes. So, you know, I, I found it fascinating. I mean, though, like, Moving from, you know, uh, Arnold and Vivekanand, right down, you know, through Jiddu, Krishnamurti, and then to eventually to Rajneesh, it almost seems like, a, I don't know, a sort of, um, I mean, a downward spiral, almost in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> because well, you started, just... you know, you started Vivekanand, who's, I mean, he's, uh, you know, genuine and, you know, he's, has this impact and then you end with Rajneesh who's I mean I don't know a, a lot of his followers still exist but you know he's a charlatan I, <laughs> you know, I mean uh, I, yeah. I, I probably get stoned for this but by some people <laughs> <laughs> you know but there's no doubt about well, that yeah I mean he's certainly a very a very controversial character and as you say it's very interesting you the 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 temper or the the, the quality or the sort of the sort of interest and devotion uh, that yeah. came from, say, you mentioned Vivekananda there. You know, when Vivekananda first came to America and spoke at the uh, the, the, the World Parliament of Religions, mm -hmm. uh, 1893, I think that was, uh, he was besieged by, by not least by women. Uh, he had yes. this tremendously sort of magnetic effect, uh, and people became very uh, very ardent devotees of, of Vivekananda, a uh, very, very important figure. And by the time we get roll on a hundred years or so, and we've got Rajneesh setting up a commune in uh, in Oregon, uh, it's it's a it's a very different kind of thing. But then you've got to, one has to understand that by then, you know, we've been through all these different sort of convulsions of of uh, the '60s, which I think was a very very kind of important part. Drug culture, which I think was very very important in as as, as a sort of connection for a lot of people. Uh, between Western and and uh, Indian spirituality, um, and and Rajneesh, yeah, I mean he's a, he's a very I, I don't think Vivekananda would have recognised even what Rajneesh was, let alone who Ooh. he was. Uh, nor would Ramakrishna, nor would Ramana Maharshi. Uh, and, and I think you know he had a specific, particular appeal, particularly to to, to Westerners who come through that sort of 
hippie experience and, and, and have been changed by that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think he was cool, wasn't he? When he first when he first sort of emerged, Rajneesh, in, in the Indian press, he was he, he was sort of called or chastised as the sex guru because <laughs> so, much of his, yeah. so much of his teaching was about, you know, you've got to liberate yourself, liberate your liberate your body, liberate your mind. Yeah. Uh, and I think that perhaps had a particular appeal to um to, to the post sixties uh young people. And not not so young actually. I mean his followers were mostly in their kind of twenties, thirties. This is the other interesting thing to me that, that if you look at Rajneesh, the people who followed Rajneesh were all professionals, highly intelligent, highly educated, doctors, yes. uh, uh, psychiatrists, sociologists. Um and I I think I I don't know whether you would describe Rajneesh as a cult. I think certainly it sort of borders on being a cult. And if you look at that's something that's true of cult behavior, that the, the people yes. who find themselves in cults tend to be intelligent people because it's intelligent people who are asking questions about the nature of themselves mm-hmm. and about the meaning of existence. Mm. But um, uh, you know, I mean, like Rajneesh was kind of really shocking, especially when uh, uh, you know the beating during those sessions and those sessions themselves. You know, in the early part of um, uh, those group sessions. Where yeah. people let all their aggressions out. I mean, those are. Uh, I can't think of people. It's almost like, you know, Mao's uh, uh, detached to his people to beat each other. You know, to yeah. get the, you know, that sort of thing is like really fascist. Yes, okay? it is. <laughs> I think. I think. I mean, it's. You know, there's an interesting conjunction here between. Uh, and again, this is something that wasn't happening at the end of the 19th century. In, in America, uh, late 50s, early 60s, through into the 70s, you have the, you have the, the growth of the, the human potential movement, uh, which is very much sort of therapy-centered and the idea of group therapy and the idea you have to let, let it all hang out, you know, let all your emotions hang out. Uh, and, and that was then sort of, in a way, exported to... to Ranjanish was, was very interested in psychology uh but, but that was then imported to, in, into the kind of rajneesh program uh and of course it was abused uh yes. you know if, if you if you give so-called therapists uh permission to 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 to, uh, to to excite people's emotions and to bring out the inner self and to bring out the primal scream and let it all hang out then the next step is that people are going to be uh you know taking their clothes off and doing all that sort of thing or they're going to be hitting out at people who they who anger them. Um, they, they had a, they had they had a, a phrase in 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 the hospital in uh, in Pune. Uh, this is before Rajneesh went to America. They had a phrase for the numbers of injuries that were people coming in from the Rajneesh ashram with sort of yeah. bruised arms, broken limbs, and it was sort of fell off a tree, you know, because they couldn't say got beaten up in a in a group therapy session. Yeah. But you're right; it's a kind of it was catharsis that became madness. Mm. Yeah, so I was like, you know, I was quite amazed at, at this sort of deterioration. Whereas, you know, the earlier gurus and even people like Meher Baba, you know, and uh, it was quite, I keep finding, I mean, books, his old books keep turning up in, you know, jumble sales and stuff, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, after we, and I often wondered who this was because he's kind of mm, vanished, like, you know, like many, many gurus do after their time. So, yeah, this is kind of um, uh, brings him back into the light almost. Well, he, yeah, I mean, he was, I think he was a particularly interesting, interesting character. And, uh, there's another character uh, who, who I think sort of connects to this is, is, is an Englishman named Paul Brunton, 
Yes. Uh, who in the who in the 1930s uh, went to India in, in search of a guru, really, or, or in, in, in search of signs and wonders, perhaps it's a better way of saying it. Mm. Uh, and he encountered Maya Baba. Uh, and he actually was rather disappointed by Maya Baba because mm. Maya Baba didn't deliver the signs and wonders that Paul Brunton uh, wanted him to. But that mm. would have been the pretty much the first sort of uh, encounter, really, between the West and Maya Baba. Mayor Barber wanted Paul Brunton to, 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 to go back to, back, to, to, back to Britain and effectively become his press agent, you know, spreading the word that here was the new messiah and, and mm. Brunton wasn't particularly interested in doing that. But then Mayor Barber did come, to, did come to Britain in the early 1930s, 1932, and gathered around him. Uh, and this echoes what had happened with Vivekananda, uh, you know, 50 or so years earlier. He gathered around him a group of primarily... Uh, upper class, uh, comfortable, slightly bohemian, artistic women uh, mm. who became very devoted to him and, and whom he actually called his lovers. Mm. Uh, and they weren't lovers in the physical sense because he was, uh, he was celibate. Mm. But he seemed to have a, a magnetic appeal to a lot of people. I mean, he had taken a vow of silence. So the only way he would communicate was through an alphabet board, tapping out letters on an alphabet board. Mm. Uh, so it's not as if he, he was a tremendous orator. Um, you know, the alphabet board rather limited that. But there are accounts of people just being in his presence, being introduced to him for the first time and sort of breaking into tears and being suffused with this sort of overwhelmed by this feeling of they described it as, as love and devotion. And he then went to, uh, went to America and very much the same thing happened there. Another group of, of similarly inclined, uh, wealthy, comfortable women um, became his devotees. And he was taken to Hollywood and uh, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, who were then the golden stars of Hollywood, uh, they threw an enormous party for him and all the movie stars came. Uh, he was obsessed with uh, he, he, he was obsessed with cinema and he was particularly obsessed with um, Greta Garbo, who he mm. described as the most spiritual of all the Hollywood stars. Mm. Uh, and, and he tried all sorts of numerous ways to try and meet Greta Garbo. Uh, <laughs> That never actually happened. <laughs> um, but he, if we roll forward another 30 or 40 years, uh, Pete Townsend, uh, I'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with a British group called yes. The Who. Yes. Pete Townsend, The Who, he became a devotee of Maya Barber. He'd never met Maya Barber because Maya Barber had died. Mm. Um, but uh, Pete wrote, a, wrote a, a, a pop opera called Tommy about a deaf, dumb, and blind boy. Uh, and th that was very much influenced by, by Maya Barber's teachings. Oh. So you do have all these resonances echoing through the, through, over the centuries, really, through the years. And that was something that particularly fascinated me in looking at this story. Hmm. And, uh, you know, let's talk about the Beatles and, and uh, them coming to Rishikesh and, you know, transcendental meditation and that whole thing of, of the late 60s where, you know, um, Maharshi, the Maharshi, uh, Maharishi Mahesh, yeah, yeah, uh, all that, you know, and what a big thing it was. But um, after that, after Rajneesh and after the Maharishi, they've been like, I don't think, I don't think the current era is even conducive to this sort of spiritual. Uh, uh, I mean, what do you think? Excess or search or whatever, you know. Well, yeah, I think I, I, I think you're right. I mean, there have been uh, I mean, there have been gurus uh, who, who have sort of had had some kind of traction in the West and some sort of appeal in the West. Um, 
course, a lot of Tibetan Buddhist uh, lamas uh, had enormous impact uh, coming to the West, Dalai Lama notably, uh, but many others. Uh, and then there's a fi figure who I, I don't talk about in this book, but I did talk about in, in, in a previous book, The Spiritual Tourist, who, who also commanded a, a, a large following of Westerners, although not so much in the West, in the West, located because he never came here. And that's Sai Baba, you know, who was a very, uh, a very big figure in, 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 in India at the time mm. and then became engulfed in scandal, of course, yes. uh, which what so often happens with, with gurus. I sometimes think actually one of the worst things that can happen to a guru is for them to have followers because, and I think that happened with Rajneesh, you know, he kind of, he got derailed in a way by, by, by the, the, the devotion and the, and, and the awe of all the people around him, giving him Rolls Royces and giving him gold watches and so on and so forth. Yes. Um, so I think uh, probably a better, a better, I, I, I went to the Sai Baba Ashram in, in, in Puttaparthi, which is an extraordinary mm. place uh, with all these sort of candy colored temples and buildings and so forth. And when I was there, I thought it would have been much better if, if he just planted a tree rather than <laughs> build all the extraordinary, extraordinary places. Um, but I don't. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. I, I don't think. Uh, I, I don't think Indian. I mean, I, I would ask you. I mean, are there are there gurus and swamis that have the same traction in India now as somebody like Sai Baba did in the in in, in the eighties and nineties? Um, maybe maybe not. I mean, is that something that has that has taken a has Indian spiritual life changed? As, as you say, India has become more consumerist and more materialistic and more political, of course. I, I mean, that, that's, that's another thing. Um, but certainly, I, I, guess, I guess I would say the, that there is, a, there is a, a legacy of all of that, which, which has really percolated into, into everyday life and, and is now a very central part of, of, um, of, of Western culture, uh, which, is, which is yoga. Um, yes, you know, once upon a time, yoga would have been seen as as as, as something rather extraordinary. I, mean, I, I can remember when church halls would 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 prohibit yoga teaching really? because it was <laughs> yeah because it was seen to be well you know we, we're we're a church we don't sort of do that kind of thing. Um, now, of course, it's it's I, I guess it's been in many ways it's been stripped of its of its uh, original sort of religious uh, spiritual connotations. And it's now marketed as mindfulness, you yes. know, which is a rather rather meditation is marketed as mindfulness, which is a rather different kind of thing. But uh, you know, half the people I work with go to yoga classes, uh, yes. and and are all the better for it. You know, so I think yeah. it's uh, I think that's probably the the longest lasting legacy, but also an interest in what happened through the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, is that I think minds in the West were considerably broadened by this mm -hmm. sense of spiritual inquiry. And I think that was to tremendous of tremendous benefit to people, you know, that mm -hmm. if you look at if, if you look at what happened when when uh, the East India Company first went to what first went to India in the in the seventeenth century, mm -hmm. it was for very commercial, very mercantile reasons. Yes. But there were certain people within that who I think were were genuine visionaries really and and who who began to study uh, Vedic culture, Hindu culture, uh, who appreciated it, uh, who were fascinated by it. I mean, the first English translation of the Bhagavad Gita uh, yes. was done in 1785 by, by a clerk of the East India Company. Uh, so in a sense, you know, those, what had originally begun as a, as a commercial enterprise, as, as a colonial enterprise, um, in, in fact, had the benefit of carrying these wonderful teachings in, 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 in Indian spirituality, carrying these wonderful teachings 
across the West. And that had an enormous, has had an enormous effect and a, and a hugely beneficial effect. Mm. You know, there are parts of the book where I laughed a little bit because, you know, you mentioned how, uh, I mean, uh, lots of the times, I mean, people were attracted to, you know, ideas from Buddhism, um, ideas from, uh, you know, uh, Vedanta and from uh, uh, maybe even Sufism as with Meher Baba. But uh, you mentioned that nobody was really uh, attempting to incorporate Jainism into their lives because it's such a difficult thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think, that you know. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that would probably require uh, more more self sacrifice. <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's a it's a harder path to follow, isn't it? It's a yes. sort of narrower path to follow. Yeah. Um, and I think that yeah, I mean, so much of Particularly in the in the in the sixties and sixties and early seventies, you know, after the Beatles, the Beatles were were this enormous sort of magnet, really, you know, for for young Westerners to to suddenly turn to the east and look to the east, uh, and and begin to think about things, appreciate a culture they hadn't maybe thought of. Uh, also, drugs, I think, was it was a very important part in this. Um, you know, drug drug culture. Uh, there was a kind of well, first of all, through writers like Aldous Huxley, then Timothy Leary, who was the sort of the LSD guru. Yes. Uh, I mean, these writers, very well, certainly sincerely, I think, in Aldous Huxley's case, you know, they they equated uh, the psychedelic experience with the with an enlightenment experience, and so it became a sort of common misconception that that uh, oh well, you know, LSD is the shortcut to enlightenment, but uh, but if you really want to care about enlightenment. You should go to the east and 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 get in a bus and travel across Iran and Afghanistan, which you got. I think a lot of those people, uh, a, a, a lot of the young hippies who, who who went there, many of whom ended up much to the distress of Indian people begging on the streets of sort of Calcutta yeah. and 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 Bombay. You know, I, I I think they were much more interested in the drug experience than they were in the in the enlightenment experience, if you like. Uh, and you know, it was it was a kind of fashionable thing to go there and hang out with sadhus in a temple. You know, smoking chillums with sadhus, and um, mm. and then actually forgetting why you've gone there because smoking yeah. chillums seems a nice thing to do. And then you throw away your passport, and then you never come home, and oh. it it all goes to hell. You know, mm. um, but I think that 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 phenomenon. There were a lot of sort of what you might call fellow travellers, as well as as well as genuinely interested people, earnest inquirers, as you were into in, in, into study and meditation. And and uh, it's such a weird phrase, isn't it? the quest for enlightenment, because I, I don't really know what enlightenment is. Um, I'm certainly not enlightened, and such people who I've met who I would consider to be enlightened never talk about being enlightened. And I think it's one of the conditions of enlightenment is that you don't sort of share it around or boast about it. <laughs> but there it is. It's this kind of shimmer at the end of the path that has certainly mm. captivated people over, over generations and generations. And, you know, what I found fascinating is that, 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 you know, Allen Ginsberg saying that all the people in India are religious. And, and you know, I was <laughs> reading it and thinking, no, we're not. And I don't think we ever were either. But perhaps this is how we appeared to the outside i don't know you know yeah well i think uh, yeah i think i think ginsburg was probably seeing the india he wanted to see you know mm. and, and and coming from coming from a very uh, america in the in, in 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 the early 60s late 50s early 60s very straight conformist 
conventional place. Mm -hmm. uh, and Ginsburg suddenly arrives there and uh, he sees people walking down the street uh, dusted with ashes from the cremation grounds and holding tridents. Uh, and, and that's the India that he wants to see. He doesn't yeah. see Indian businessmen and, uh, you know, commercial India. Yeah. Uh, I think Timothy Leary, uh, when he went to uh, Varanasi, Benares, he, you know, he, he, he described it as it, it's like a sort of thousand year old hippie festival. Well, I'm sure that wasn't. I'm sure that wasn't how the people in Varanasi saw it. So, so, so this was along with their rucksacks. I think you know a lot of the Western travellers coming to India at that time were conceptions with them, and seeing India through the lens of that. Hmm. So, when you were writing this book, you know what was the most challenging bit about it? You know. Um, the research, really. I mean, it, it, it required an enormous amount of enormous amount of research, an enormous amount of reading, mm -hmm. uh, time spent in the in, in, in the in the British Library, the reading room of the British Library, uh, going through um, documents and letters and so forth. The Warburg Institute in in London. Uh, if, if any of your listeners are interested in any of these subjects, that's a terrific sort of point of reference. Um, but you know, I'm a journalist, and and and. Part of being a journalist is, is to do research, and that's something I, I, I love to do. I, I love to, to to set myself a task of finding out about something, and then and then finding out about it. Um, but so it's I think writing any book is 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 hard and laborious, but it's also a pleasure. And you know the best part of writing a book is the is the final full stop in a way, um, because then it's done. Um, but no, uh, it was as I say, it was something that and it, a subject. I, I love India. I mean, I've been to India many times. Maybe I bring my own preconceptions to India, but I've I've always had a a, a wonderful time in India, a fascinating time. I have I have friends in India, um, so it's it's a place that has always fascinated me, that I've always loved, and so being able to write about the relationship between my country and India, uh, or a specific strand of that relationship, you know, was something that I found very interesting and very fascinating. Um, so, and I hope other people do, you know. <laughs> so. But did you ever come to India with this kind of spiritual quest or was it just, you know, other things? Whoa. Well, uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I first came to India, in fact, to interview the Dalai Lama. Oh, okay. Uh, I was very interested in the Dalai Lama and I was commissioned uh, to come and interview the Dalai Lama. And I, I vividly remember, and, and this is, you know, a naive, open-eyed Westerner speaking, you know, I vividly remember arriving at... A, uh, Delhi airport uh, and, and stepping out into this kind of fantastically energizing and magical, and now I am sounding romantic, uh, fantastically <laughs> energizing and magical tumult of sound and smells and warmth and heat uh, and just feeling, ah, this is incredible. This is just incredible. Uh, and and then I went up to Dharamsala and, and traveled up to Dharamsala uh, and then subsequent to that, in, in writing this other book, The Spiritual Tourist, uh, I, I, I traveled around India a, a fair bit. And um, as I say, spent time in, uh, not, not a long time, but a short time in um, Putta Party in, uh, in uh, Sai Baba's ashram. But I'll tell you one thing that it always, and forgive me this, it always comes to mind about the magic of India for me. And maybe this could have happened anywhere, but because it happened in India, it's a, a moment I cherish. I, I was traveling on a bus, overnight bus, state bus, 
from Chennai, to, uh, not from Chennai, but from Bangalore to Pondicherry. Mm. Uh, and bus bumping along through the darkness. And suddenly it came to a halt in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and it was a level crossing. And so I got out of the bus because, you know, it's going to take a little while. Mm. So here it is, starlit and Bible black uh, sky. And I could suddenly hear this bell, dong, 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 coming from the distance. And the noise grew louder and louder. And it was the train coming slowly across the plain. And then the train passed, and you could see the faces of people illuminated in the windows, staring out into the darkness. And I was staring back at them. And I can honestly say it was as happy as I've ever felt in my life. It was just one of those extraordinarily magical moments where you're you're freed of all contingencies, all concerns, all worries, just completely in the moment of watching this train go by. And I've had, yeah, that just that experience of, I'm sure that's, you know, somebody somebody else would just think, hurry up train, you know, we've got to get on the cherry. <laughs> I didn't care about how long the train took. Um, so I think India, certainly for, for, for me, an Englishman, you know, there's certainly a, a romance of the other. And, and I'm sure perhaps, you know, Indian people coming to London have, have felt energized and fascinated and excited in, in, in the same way. But I never tire of I never tire of being in India. And it always it's constantly revealing surprises and amusements and magic to me. So so, you know, it, it was a pleasure for me to to, to, to write this book and to, to write the other books I've done that have involved India, really. Okay, so do you, do you want to talk about uh, you know I was when I was reading this I you know, I've read Jiddu Krishnamurti on and off but I didn't know he was kind of like mm, kidnapped <laughs> into the theosophy movement. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's not that's not <laughs> putting finer points on it. Yeah, <laughs> I, well that's a, that's an that's an extraordinary story. I mean the, the, there was this the Theosophical Society which grew up in the in the late nineteenth century in in. Uh, founded in America, actually, but then primarily a, a British thing. Uh, this extraordinary woman, Madame Blavatsky, yes. uh, and uh, Olcott, William Olcott, who'd been a, a, an American um, in the American Civil War and then be become a journalist. Uh, so they founded the Theosophical Society. And the, the abiding idea of this was that it was going to, it was supposed to be a sort of ecumenical in a way. I mean, it was steeped in, in, in Buddhism, uh, but also steeped in, in uh all sorts of sort of partly occult, but partly you know it was, it was a real mishmash of different ideas. Yes, yes. Um, uh, but one of the one of the one of the abiding central themes of it was this this idea of bringing forward the next world teacher. Mm. And every religious tradition talks about the next world teacher. You know, in, in yes. Buddhism, it's it, it's the Maitreya. And so uh, there was this search for the Maitreya and. There was a man named uh, Charles Ledbetter who was a theosophist and at the theosophical headquarters, um, uh, he, there on the beach uh, in, in, uh, in, in Chennai, he um, saw this young boy who he thought was, was imbued with a certain sort of spiritual aura, certain spiritual characteristics. And he was the son of the caretaker yes. uh, at the theosophical headquarters. And and he, Krishnamurti, and his younger brother were sort of more or less, as you say, kidnapped away from the father. Yeah. Uh, and they were brought up, uh, and Krishnamurti was groomed to be the next world teacher. Mm. And, and dressed up in a several row suits and, um, you know, presented to the world. Yeah. Uh, and at that point, the Theosophical Society, you know, had, had, a, had a fair number of followers. Um, 
But then in the 1920s, he turned around and said, no, no, it's, it's not true. I'm not, I'm not who you think I am. You shouldn't follow religions. You shouldn't follow people who purport to be leading you to the truth. The truth is a pathless land. And so he, he then continued to travel the world as a philosopher and a teacher. Yeah. But his central teaching was the truth is a pathless land, which you have to find for yourself, that nobody, nobody else is going to lead you there. So I think he was, a, he was certainly an extraordinary man. And, and that was an extraordinary chapter in, 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 uh, in this strange relationship between East and West. Um, yeah. The Theosophical Society then, after that, the Theosophical Society began to sort of fall away and to lose any kind of purchase. But at the time, it was uh, it was quite a quite a powerful, influential, influential, I should say, organization. W. B. Yeats was a member of the Theosophical Society. Mm. Um, you know, various various painters, poets, uh, scientists, even. Um, so it it had some purchase, and it's it's still there at, at, at Agile. The, the 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 Theosophical Society headquarters is still there at Agile. Yeah. Um, so it's a, yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting story. That interesting story that. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm interested in what you said earlier about how you know gurus flare up and then they fade away. Yes. Like late night, a bit like late night TV commercials. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some of them anyway, they vanish into the ether. Um, but then there are others uh, who I think still have command enormous fascination and an interest, and, and quite rightly so, among uh, among Westerners who are who are interested and fascinated by these things. Ramana Maharshi. Yes, you know, is yeah. is one, mm -hmm. and I, I don't I don't designate any kind of status or I mean if, if there's a sort of top twenty of Indian saints and all, but if um, certainly of the people that I began to explore more about and to read more about and learn more about, uh, I think Ramakrishna yes. uh, and then Ramana Maharshi. You know these these Ramana Maharshi in particular. You know a genuinely saintly saintly figure and an exemplar of of. Uh, Advaita teachings and, and, a, and a, an extraordinary man, a truly extraordinary yes. man. Yes. So, you know, like there's, that's what your book made me think about. There are these people who probably are gen, they genuinely evolved. I mean, you know, they have something to offer the world. And then there are the others who are just, I mean, it's they're in it for the business. Oof, I don't know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, who, who gained the admiration and fascination of, of, of Westerners and, and continue to do so. Uh, I think Ramana, Ramana Maharshi is, is, is one. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, actually, looking back, um, Paul Brunton, whom I mentioned earlier, yes. was the person who I guess was the first person to, to really introduce Ramana Maharshi to a, to, to, to a broad Western audience. Mm -hmm. Having become disillusioned with Maya Baba, mm -hmm. uh, Brunton continued on his travels through, through India uh, and, and came upon Ramana Maharshi uh, and was... was what's the phrase, blown away, I think you should say, <laughs> by Ramana Maharshi. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, continued, uh, I guess he became, in a sense, the, the central figure in, in, in Brunton's life uh, from then on. It's, there's an interesting story here, actually, concerning Somerset Maugham, mm -hmm. whom uh, in the 1930s was, was the best-selling English writer in the world. Yes. Uh, these extraordinary novels. And he went to India uh, and was in... Uh, was in uh, Chennai uh, and was told about Ramana Maharshi and, and traveled down to Ramana Maharshi's ashram. He was there talking with an English devotee uh, mm -hmm. named Chadwick, uh, who had been living at, at Ramana Maharshi's ashram. 
and Somerset Maugham was suddenly overtaken by by a sort of fainting fit mm. and uh, was was laid down on a bed and and then Ramana Maharshi came in to see him was told about this and came in to see him uh, and they spoke for a short while and the story spread that uh, Raman that uh, Somerset Maugham had been so overcome to be in Ramana Maharshi's presence that he that he fainted that he'd had some sort of experience uh, of of, of, um, of being overcome. And, and Maugham was subsequently obliged to, to explain that this wasn't the case, actually, that he was prone to fainting fits. And, uh, and it probably had little to do with Ramana Maharshi. But nonetheless, Ramana Maharshi became the central figure in a book uh, called The Razor's Edge, which Somerset Maugham subsequently wrote. And that's a really interesting book, actually, because it's, it's the first, probably the first uh, novelization of, of a Westerner's account with uh, a, a great Indian, Indian teacher. Um, but it, peculiarly, it, it didn't become a, a, a kind of cult book in the way that, say, Herman Hesse's Siddhartha did or um, Ram Dass's uh, Be Here Now did. But it's a very interesting book, which, I, which I'd urge, uh, urge your listeners to, to, to seek out. There, there was, a, there was a, a very good film made of it as well in the, uh, in, in the 1940s. Um, so Ramana Maharshi, I think he's, he's a really, really interesting character. But clearly, there are there are there have been charlatans. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And and there are charlatans in every religion, in every faith, in every walk of life. I, I remember something that illustrates this. I mean, it's not exactly a guru experience, but I remember being in Varanasi and uh, walking along by the ghats and coming across uh, lying on a pallet was was. Uh, what appeared to be a, a, a dead body wrapped in cloth, and there was somebody sitting beside it begging for money to to to, to pay a, a, a priest to 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 do the uh, um, ceremonial kind of rituals. Um, and so I gave him some money, and as I walked away, somebody came up to me and said, "No, no, 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 cheater, cheater!" And there wasn't a body in there at all. It was simply <laughs> a number of cushions covered in white in white fabric. Um, and I had to laugh at that. I've been done. Um, but, you know, you could, I, I think, I, I can't think of exactly that analogous situation in London, um, but I'm sure there are analogous situations in London. You know, there are going to be chances everywhere, really. Uh, and, and religion is a particularly fertile ground for chances of all sorts, I think. Yeah. Talking about, you know, funny bits, and even this thing about, uh, I hadn't heard about this boy, uh, boy guru, before and I didn't know he was so famous in the West or he was ever. Oh, yeah. and, and now he's become just a self improvement type. I mean, what's his That's name? Right. <laughs> Guru, Guru Maharaj Ji. Yeah, no, Prem Rawat Foundation. I yes, have to look him up. Guru now, Maharaj yeah. Ji. So he Guru was like Maharaj really. Ji. Yeah, and this bit about this him going into this uh, concert, I, I found this hilarious. I've marked it as well. In fact, Low seems to have misunderstood. So garbled was the Maharaji's English. What he actually asked for was the money of love and devotion, but the crowd was in no mood to give it to him. There was apparently further confusion when he instructed that there should be no more sex. Many thought he was saying there should be no more sex. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> So they booed him off yeah. the stage, <laughs> and he was booed off the stage. Yeah, this was this was a, a, a very early Glastonbury festival. I mean, the Glastonbury <laughs> festival is now kind of universally known. Yeah. Uh, but at that time, in 1971, it, it was uh, 71, 72. It was it was a quite a small affair, and he'd he'd uh, he'd arrived from arrived from India. Uh, he was he was 15 at the time, and um, he'd been some Western travellers in India 
had become uh, disciples of his, and then the word spread to Britain, so he was came over to Britain, uh, and he was greeted at Heathrow Airport. Uh, his devotees had hired a, hired a Rolls Royce, uh, garlanded in flowers, and so when he came out, there was a Rolls Royce waiting for him. Uh, and he was driven off in this, people throwing rose petals in front of him as he came out of the terminal. Um, he was taken down to uh, the, the Glastonbury Festival a couple of days later. Uh, the Rolls had had to gone back to the hire company, so he was driven down in a Ford Zodiac, which was a much more modest, uh, <laughs> modest form of transport. But rather amusingly, um, one of his disciples had, had phoned up the organiser of the, of, of the Glastonbury Festival, a man named Mike Levis, and said, can we put God on the stage? And Michael Evis, being a very obliging sort of chap, had said, sure, why not, you know, bring him along. Um, and so he appeared on stage. He didn't get a terribly warm welcome. But he did. He had an enormous, uh, enormous purchase, enormous following for, for a while. And there was suddenly this proliferation of ashrams in, in, in Britain and then in the States mm. uh, where young people were living uh, and they were expected to carry on going out to work. And their money would, of course, be given to the organization. Uh, he went to America and they hired the Houston Astrodome, uh, which is a huge sports stadium. And there were all sorts of stories about how the Astrodome was going to levitate when he arrived. Such was his sort of, you know, mystical powers. And, uh, and then he he rather, uh, what's the word? <laughs> he rather sort of compromised his sort of uh, uh, holy image by marrying an air hostess who was one of his devotees and uh, buying a house in Malibu. Uh, and then he took flying lessons and bought his own private jet so he could fly himself around. And a bit like the, a bit like the Maharishi Mahesh really, once the, once the sort of the religious connotations of this began to, began to pal somewhat, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he began to sort of, he, he, he was, he was talking about this, this practice called the knowledge, mm -hmm. which was supposed to lead you to enlightenment. Uh, and then the knowledge began to be, it was no longer talked about, and he began to talk about knowledge in a much broader sense. And he said, well, no, I was never, I never said that I was God. This is what my devotees said about me. Uh, and he gave up the, 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 the white, uh, the, the white curtain and, and the, the sort of guru uniform and started wearing suits and giving lectures about how to, about self-improvement, basically. Uh, and, and lectures and on, on on business and so forth. Uh, so I think there was this there was this this uh, quite interesting sort of slate of hand, as it were, you know, where he kind of reinvented himself. And he still talks. He still he still holds conferences in hotel conference centres and so forth. Uh, but all the trappings of religiosity have, have long been since discarded. And I think the same thing happened with the Maharishi Mahesh, that you know he began to talk less about religion, less about where he'd actually come from yeah. and tm was then marketed and that's not too strong a word i don't think was then marketed as a as a as a, as a form of sort of concentration as a form of self-improvement uh, as a way to, to to get on in life get on in business and uh, so you know we definitely see this happening where where the the enamoration uh with eastern spirituality in in, it, in its more pure or more overt forms certainly begins to fade away and, and i think now i'd be hard put to name a single indian guru uh, who commands a living guru who, mm -hmm. who, who commands any sort of following in the west 
I mean, is that still, would that be true in India too? I don't know. You, you'd be no, better India qualified. There are, yeah, India, there are still gurus. But I don't, uh, yeah, there's the art of living. And he um, he was one of uh, Maharishi's disciples, I think. That's where he gets his, um, I've forgotten his name. I mean, he's a big guru. It's called the art of living. And uh, it's, yes. um, and then there's, uh, uh, there are gurus, you know. But it, it, I don't think they're international in that way. And even within no. India, I mean, I think people kind of shop for gurus. I, I mean, since I'm not, you know, I, I really can't speak with uh, much. <laughs> since I'm not a guru type, living guru type you're not, at least. You're not, you're not shopping for a guru, are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, one can read stuff and, you know, some some people like Parsh, you know, uh, Ramana Maharshi and you know, stuff like that. You can... Uh, or Jiddu Krishnamurti, you have something to offer, but I don't know. Yeah. Maybe the living good. Well, I mean, I, I mean, the uh, Rajneesh is a very interesting example here, isn't he? Because mm. once he'd been kicked out of America uh, for, for tax, tax irregulations and uh, uh, visa irregulations, um, he eventually, I mean, he was, he was pre prevented from landing at all sorts of airports around the world. People yes. didn't want him. He fled from America yeah. and he eventually uh, landed back in India. And basically reinvented himself as Osho, yes. and I think, and there's still the, the, the what was the old uh, Rajneesh Ashram uh, in, in in Pune is now a, a sort of spiritual holiday camp in a way, yes. Um, yes. but you know branded as 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 Osho, and I'm sure many 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 people who read all the books now are printed under the name of Osho. Everything is about Osho, and I'm sure many people who follow Osho and are interested in Osho and read his books are completely unaware of the fact that he was once the wicked Bhagwan, you know, <laughs> the, the 92 Rolls-Royce guru. I, I, you know, that's been sort of just airbrushed out of his history, really. Um, so I think uh, I, I, that's, that's really interesting to me. Yeah, the recent documentary, you know, that Wild Wild West, I think that bit has come back in the Netflix documentary, you know, there was one, I think, that last year. A fantastic yeah. one, you know, with Man and yeah, Chile. That was, yeah, that was that was that was really really interesting, and uh, yeah, I think I think one of the things that that, that didn't explain, I, I don't think fully, was was quite how and why he had become such a powerful and influential figure. You know, it didn't go to my mind quite so much into into his upbringing background. Yes, you know, he was a, he was a philosophy professor. Yes. Uh, who basically sort of invented himself as a guru, reinvented himself as a guru. Mm -hmm. um, it's fascinating. I mean, he's a fascinating man. Whether you whether you like him, admire him, or loathe him and distrust him, <laughs> you know, nobody, can, nobody nobody can deny that he's certainly a really really interesting character. And and a yeah, I mean, he's a really interesting character. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed how you've like gotten all these anecdotes as well. This bit about. Um, this one, um, on one occasion at Paul McCartney's house, where McCartney's girlfriend, the actress Jane Asher, was entertaining some of her theatre friends to dinner, Lenin demonstrated his abject humility by crawling around the table on his hands and knees, offering his open mouth to be used as an, as an ashtray. Asher admirably, Asher's admirably cool response was to extend one leg and push him over. Yeah, this is. I mean, this is an apocryphal story. This was this was told to me uh, by somebody. Um, well, that that 
illustrates really so much of what the temper of the times were, because part of the whole fascination or, or the path, as it were, uh, that, that, that towards enlightenment uh, that, that, that people were sort of absorbing was the sort of the the, the, the destruction of the ego, you know, that the, the ego is, is the thing that gets in the way of enlightenment. Uh, all the preoccupations of self that get in the way of this, and you have to sort of surrender all those preoccupations, those inquiries in, in, with, with self. Mm -hmm. uh, and and Lennon, Lennon, John Lennon, uh, really took this on board. And um, at the time, he was taking a, an awful lot of LSD. Uh, and... LSD, Timothy Leary, uh, in, in his book, um, The Psychedelic Revolution, you know, he described LSD as being a sort of almost like gelignite, you know, to sort of blow away the ego and, and, and just leave this clear plane of vision and enlightenment that you would see. Uh, Lenin was taking an enormous amount of LSD. And so I think this, this, this idea of the abnegation of the ego was very much in his, in, in his mind. Uh, and, and crawling around on your hands and knees using your mouth as an ashtray perhaps was a rather extreme way of, of, of him demonstrating his, his lack of egolessness, or his lack of ego, his egolessness, I should say. Um, and then there was a lot of talk about, a lot of talk about ego, get, getting rid of the ego. Um, and clearly that is a central part of, uh, a central part of, 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 of the, the path to enlightenment. Um, but I think it was probably slightly misunderstood. Uh, I think I say in the book at one point, perhaps I, I quote a book uh, that was written at the time, all over America, young Americans are shedding their egos, mm -hmm. as if this was something that you could just sort of Pickle. take off and hang up on a shelf and become sort of fully enlightened. Uh, and I, I don't think that's the case. If you look at people shedding their egos, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very long, tortuous and... Um, path that you have to tread is not something that happens overnight I don't think you know in many of these stories like one gets feeling that you know it's not it's hysterical you know I, I, I mean sorry if I'm sounding judgmental <laughs> it's, no. I guess it's, it's like a secularist sort of view of religious experience but um what do you think you know is it yeah I think I, I think uh I mean, it's interesting. Hysterical is is an interesting choice of word. Um, uh, Mayor Barber, uh, what, what one of his uh, early British followers in the nineteen thirties uh, was called Meredith Starr, mm -hmm. and another interesting man. Uh, and Meredith Starr set up a, a, a sort of meditation centre, which was basically uh, dedicated to to Mayor Barber. Mm -hmm. uh, down in Devon, and and he followed Mayor Barber around and went to America with him, and so on and so forth. Then he became very disenchanted with him, and he then published a sort of letter of renunciation. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the accusations was Mayor Barber is surrounded by hysterical women. Uh, so he described, or he came to describe, the, the Mayor Barber's lovers uh, as hysterical women. Um, I think it's it's really interesting actually that because Vivekananda was also surrounded by women. Um, and I think Mary Lutkins, uh, who was married to a very famous Indian, uh, very famous uh, English architect, Edwin Lutkins, who's yes. the man who actually designed New Delhi, Edwin Lutkins' wife, Mary, she became besotted with Krishnamurti. And, you know, it had a very deleterious effect on, on her marriage, which actually survived. Um, but she was besotted with him and, and followed him everywhere. And I think particularly in that period, uh, for women of a certain class and a certain type, there was a tremendous romance attached to Indian swamis and Indian gurus. 
uh, Annie Besant, when, when, when Vivekananda spoke at the um, World Parliament of Religions, uh, she extolled him as, as a, a man among men, this lion, this strong figure. So I think there was this tremendous sort of romantic, romantic attraction. And I think that probably had something to do with the fact that uh, gurus at that period presented themselves uh, unintentionally, perhaps, but seemed to be an antidote to the very stiff, rigid uh, idea of, of manhood that prevailed in Victorian and Edwardian society. You know, what could be more romantic than this figure coming along, talking about liberation, talking about uh, enlightenment experiences. Uh, it was almost, for these people, it was almost, certainly for Maya Baba's uh, devotees, it was almost as if Jesus was walking on the earth again, you know. Uh, so I, I think that had a particular attraction to women of a certain class or women of a certain type. Uh, you know, educated women, but women who at that period uh, would have necessarily been seen as being second-class citizens, effectively, you know. I mean, not, not able to, to pursue careers or to do the things that women now take for granted. So you have a very repressive society, and then you have these very romantic figures uh, arriving in it, and I can see what the attraction was there. That's less so as we go into the 60s. Uh, I, I don't think um, you know, the, the Maharishi Mahesh... Um, I don't think he had the same effect on women that Vivekananda did. Uh, I don't think Rajneesh did. But Rajneesh's, certainly sex was a very important part, I think, of, of what Rajneesh was about. You know, it was, it was, he was giving license, in a way, to the sort of free love ethic that, that, that had flourished in, in the West in, in, in the 1960s. Uh, and, you know, that was more or less encouraged in, 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 in a Rajneesh ashram. Um, I, I spoke to somebody who'd spent time in, in, in Pune, uh, and basically that that had destroyed his marriage. You know, he went there with his wife. Um, I may sound very conservative about this, but, but you know, free sex doesn't really have a good reputation, I don't think, in terms of sort of um, maintaining relationships. You know, it, it gives rise to jealousies and possessiveness and all of those. Sort of, you know, human nature, let's face it, yeah. it's human nature. Yeah. Um, but that was certainly a very, very important part, I think, of, of, of Rajneesh's uh, appeal to, 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 to young Westerners, yeah. Oh, okay. So then, um, are you working on something else now? Um, not, not, not about that. No, I'm, I'm taking, I'm taking a rest from, um, from my inquiries into, into, into Eastern spirituality. Um, no, I, I'm. Uh, people keep. I, I've, I've, I've had a very long and, and, and very fortunate career, uh, and had the great privilege of, you know, meeting many interesting people and being in interesting places and so forth, uh, and, and. I say people, I mean my family, keep saying, oh, you should write down your memoirs, Dad. And so, so I've been sort of, so I've been doing, uh, writing things quietly. Um, you should delete this part from the conversation. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I've been doing quietly. Um, mm. But no, I, I'm, I'm not. It, it doesn't mean my interest has, has, has uh, in all of this has, 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 has diminished. Uh, and certainly not my, my love for, for India, which I must emphasize. Uh, I've had such great times in India and met so many wonderful people. And I, I, I love India. Calcutta in particular, Kolkata, I should say, uh, which is probably my favorite Indian city. Um, so, oh, here's this, this, this. My wife and I were in were in uh, India last year, traveling through southern India, mm. uh, and we went to the Minakshi Temple in Madurai, uh, mm. where I'd been before a couple of times. Um, and we went to the ceremony where uh, where, where the Shiva is is carried through the temple, processed through the temple to Minakshi's bed chamber. Um, and I watched that with the same 
wonder and fascination uh, as the previous two times that I'd seen that. I'm always very struck by simple demonstrations of faith mm. and by the demonstrations of faith of those worshippers at the temple. Mm. I, and I remember before be, before the procession, um, uh, people flooding out of out of the Shiva temple, uh, and and the, the the sort of smiles and joy on their faces, uh, and and people seeing me and smiling at me, and I was smiling back at them, and we were having conversations. And these aren't these aren't um, for, in the main these aren't uh, uh, tech gurus or uh, Indian industrialists or mm. billionaires living in fancy parts of Mumbai. You yeah. know, these are sort of humble people who come from all over India to, to be there. Yes. And I found demonstrations of their faith very powerful and very human. And, uh, yeah, that always affects me in a very strong way. Okay. Okay, great. So, you know, Mick, I could keep talking to you, but <laughs> we'd have to wind up. And for, for, for the listeners, go out and get the Nirvana Express, uh, How the Search for Enlightenment Went West by Mick Brown. It's, it's really interesting reading. And, you know, whether you're an Indian or whether you're not, you'd find something um, extraordinary. I mean, great stories and, you know, insights and stuff about the history of how Indian spirituality went West. Thank you so much, Mick, for talking to me. Oh, it's been my great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Take see you. Care. Bye. Bye, Bye. To stay updated on this podcast, follow us at HD Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.hdsmartcast.com. Smartcast.com.